Hi, I'm Jason Scott, and with me today on iloveedmontonrealestate.com is Graham Barr. Graham is a lawyer with Barr LLP here in Edmonton. Graham, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so, you know, Barr does a whole bunch of different facets of law, but what we're talking about today is real estate specifically. So, tell me what your firm does with regards to helping people when it comes to real estate transactions. Absolutely. So we've been uh, in business since 1997, and I'd say since about 2015, decided to take a real focus on real estate, be it residential, commercial, industrial, but where our heart lies is and always has been with residential real estate. And I had this question this week, so it comes to mind, but why do you need a lawyer when you're buying or selling a home? In Alberta, we still consider ourselves the cowboys of real estate, which is to say that we haven't modernized our system in this province. Not to say that modernization doesn't and won't require lawyers in the future, but that we still do contracts by signature, be it electronic signature or other now, but more importantly, our registration system. And our registration system, being the Alberta Land Titles Office, still requires wedding signatures on both transfers of land and mortgages, necessitating everybody to still do contract. And so it can't just be handshakes between people. (laughs) Right. But what about the actual process of getting the the deal wrapped up? I mean, I know lenders require your services. So, okay, lenders require lawyers to to complete the transaction and put the mortgage on or pay out the existing mortgage in the case of a sale. So, I mean, I don't see lawyers not being required for this process, but people have this, you know, thought that they can do it themselves. That's where the difficulties lie for for the individual, which is the banks do want to have a lawyer that helps them limit their liabilities, but also helps the consumer have their mortgages paid out and ensure that the title is is clear. From a purchaser's perspective, that's exactly what they're looking for. They want to know that they are going to receive clean title, which necessitates a lawyer working together with the bank to have the mortgages paid out and discharges registered. Yeah. Now, one thing a lot of people don't realize is that when they're buying a place and they're getting a mortgage, you as the lawyer represent both the buyer and the lender. Tell me a little bit about that. I think a lot of people don't realize that. There is only one bank in particular being the Toronto Dominion Bank that actually asks us to have the permission of both buyer and the bank prior to acting but that most banks need and have uh, a requirement that a lawyer be involved from their end for the registration of mortgage. And that, of course, the purchaser is also going to require a lawyer and that they download the liabilities to us and that the, the, the purchasers don't even realize that when they're visiting their mortgage broker, that part of the process is going to be that a lawyer acts for both bank and them. And they get to pay for the bank. And they get to pay for the bank. Uh, <laughs> the house always wins in, in finance, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, okay, cool. What's a lawyer typically cost these days? I mean, the price of everything's going up. So what's going to cost me to buy or sell a place with a mortgage? It's strange in our firm. We have evaluated our numbers for the last decade, and we have never changed our fees. And so what we have found is that we're able to find efficiencies, be it through software, through our service providers in order to keep our legal fee static and that a traditional purchase still costs for a legal fee about $850. Okay. Software charges have skyrocketed. Couriers have gone up. The cost of printing has gone up. But what we have been able to do as our firm is find efficiencies through all those different third-party service providers to keep our fee the same. Right. And, and so just for the average person, you know, they're, they're not going to be aware that 
you know, there are the legal fees plus disbursements, and the disbursements are these extra costs that you're passing on to the client. Exactly right. So when we say uh, disbursements, what we're talking about are extras like title insurance, like couriers. We do have non-taxable disbursements, but otherwise known as the registration fees with the province. Happily, in the same 10-year period, the province has not significantly increased either the registration fees of mortgages or transfers of land, but they still have a fixed cost. And that's always in addition to what the legal fee is. Right. Don't give them any ideas because you know what's coming. <laughs> it, it is the only money-making venture the province currently has, right? So at some point, they're going to figure out how to monetize it or sell it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so if we look at today's real estate market, you know, interest rates have gone up dramatically. You know, that's having an impact on people getting financing are you seeing any issues where people have waived their financing condition and then deals are falling apart and they, you know, they lose their financing and they can't close their purchase or their sale because they don't have enough money to close? It's still pretty rare. And okay. what, what we do say, of course, when you're doing original contract is to say during your condition removal period is a perfect opportunity to have your lawyer review the contract in advance. Yeah. I think a lot of purchasers don't realize that a lawyer doesn't need to be contacted at the end, as the last step of the process. In fact, we encourage all of, all of our clients to reach out to us in advance of removal of their conditions. And when I mean conditions, when you're looking through your contract and you have the ability to add a financing condition, a property inspection condition, condo document review condition period, we say if you're going to have any conditions whatsoever, it is absolutely no harm putting a dish condition for the review by purchaser's counsel of the contract. It gives us the ability to look at it in advance. It also gives us the opportunity to talk to them about what some of the risks during the condition period are. Financing is a huge one. If you're not able to obtain the financing necessary to close, you should never be removing your condition of finance. This should be your out. If you're not able to get or, or be qualified for financing that is suitable to you, which is to say, if you don't have a financing condition, any financing could be deemed to be suitable, regardless of the interest rate or other. So your out is that financing condition. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's interesting. A lot of lawyers will say, well, you know, we'll get involved after you waive your conditions. So you're, you're taking the exact opposite approach to that. Oh, absolutely. And, and part of what our firm has had as a mentality is encouraging our clients to reach out to us proactively without fear that if they don't close on the transaction, they're somehow also going to get a legal bill. If we're able to help the client in advance by reviewing that contract and finding what could be a critical error or something that's going to cause the deal to, to not go forward, we'd rather that happen and find that for our clients and not bill for that service, knowing full well that when they do find the right transaction, that's when we'll close together. So yeah. not to wait until the deal is completely wrapped up and done and handed to us, but to tell the clients, use us as a resource in advance. Right. Okay. What are some of the issues that people can run into with condominiums? You know, it, condominiums are an entity into themselves. People don't really realize that when they're buying a condo, they're actually buying into a corporation and the financial health of that. So, I mean, what what's your role in guiding them along that path? What a perfect opportunity for us to say there are wonderful companies that will help to third-party reviews of condominium documents. And by condominium documents, what I'm talking about is that when you're looking to purchase a condominium, 
there are certain documents as set out by the corporation that they have to have on hand for both their owners and prospective purchasers. Right. That could be reserve fund studies, which is an engineering report to tell you what the life expectancy of the building and its components might be, and how and when those are going to require financial input to either be brought up to a significant standard or replaced. That's just one facet. The other is the day-to-day governance, the management of, of the building and for the corporation. It's accounting advisors. A lot of people don't realize when they're buying into a condo, they are buying into a business. In fact, they're buying shares in one ten thousandth increments of a corporation in Alberta. What that comes with is responsibilities of a condo board and another condo corporation to help manage that asset. But that the review of those documents in advance of a purchase is incredibly important and not something that can just normally be done either by the purchaser themselves, certainly not their realtor, certainly not their mortgage broker. And in fact, what our firm has come to say is not by the lawyer, particularly surrounding the income statements or uh, year-end financial statements of the corporation, the reserve fund study. These are things that should be and can be reviewed by accountants, but there are also a number of third-party suppliers that offer this service to prospective buyers to have those condo documents reviewed and actually give an opinion. Right. Okay. You think it's better to use the third party rather than have the lawyer review docs because sometimes lenders will ask the lawyer to review the condo docs. And usually I'll issue such a qualified opinion (laughs) that it's not going to be very useful (laughs) to say that, uh, of course, the nature of our business, we're coming across the same documents as as the purchases are all the time. But because we can't give any tax advice, because we're not in a position to offer a competent review of the financial statements, our opinion on same is going to be based simply on the reading of it. And if you are inclined as to, to, to know how a financial statement reads, most people could figure out for themselves whether there's issues or not. But why take those risks? Which yeah. is why we, we happily say, please, please approach one of these third-party suppliers. Right. Okay. You mentioned in disbursements uh, title insurance. And I've done a couple of episodes on title insurance, but it's always good to talk about title insurance. Give us the quick 411 on title insurance, why lenders want it, and why buyers should strongly consider getting it. Oh, first and foremost, in Alberta, and I say Alberta specifically because title insurance is mostly a creature of of American law brought into Ontario because of the nature of how the land title system in Ontario works, and it's made its way west over time. Alberta has a very different and very unique land title system. We run something called the Torrens Land System, which is a uh, a very transparent mirror image title. What you see is what you get. There aren't a lot of hidden rights or other kind of things that are going to interfere with title. If it's not registered, it doesn't exist. Right. And just maybe we should back up. The title is what? It is the legal document that tells you everything there is to know about that property. Absolutely. So our Alberta land titles system issues every property a title, uh, which is a legal instrument with a legal registration number that says whether or not that title is yours as an owner in fee simple, the land's yours, or whether it's crown land or, or leasehold land. But if it's your land, that legal description has to reflect all of the registrations applicable to it. Right. The older neighborhood you live in, the less registrations there tend to be, right. a lot more registrations in newer developments, but those registrations have to exist on title to be able to affect a landowner. Right. Which is to say, 
why title insure then? If it's so transparent, what do you need insurance for? And the answer is for the things that are not reflected on title, but they can affect your ownership of the property, not with regard to the title. And by that, I mean permitting. I mean environmental issues. I mean issues with your fence lines. Title insurance is a wide-ranging project product that can cover a lot of evils, permits being one of them. In Alberta, we do have one significant issue that COVID has brought even further to the fore, and that is the time period for registration. In a lot of jurisdictions across Canada, they have electronic registration systems, which is on the day of closing of your transaction, you're buying your house, your title is granted that day. As I started this interview with, Alberta's got some antiquated systems, and we are facing a delay in our land title system of over 130 days currently. Yeah, it's crazy. So from the day that you put your, your registration in to have the title put in your name and to register your mortgage, it's upwards of four to five months before you become the registered owner. So that creates this massive window where things can happen that you don't know is in the works already and you're still waiting for your title to get updated. Absolutely. So if you don't have something that covers that gap, and so title insurers are, are very quick about these type of activities, they've amended their insurance to provide gap coverage, which is to say from the day of submission until the day of registration, if anything further is added to title post-registration, or there's a builder's lien, which is a, a type of caveat and, and debt between builder, constructor, and the owner of the land that can sometimes jump the registration queue. There is legislation to change that. But something that appears on your title that affects your ownership and enjoyment of that title or financially affects you, insurance is available for that. So title insurance in Alberta, first and foremost, offers gap coverage. And so it covers that registration period. In addition, the 411, it covers a whole bunch of other topics. It covers permitting, it covers government work orders, it can cover environmental, fencing issues. It also covers liens from the CRA. You can get uh, coverage now in the event that you purchase from an individual and find out that they have CRA issues. And the CRA goes back in time, determines that monies were owing and they want to secure it against the property. The CRA does have the ability to go back in time and put that registration on title. But if you have a title insurance policy as a buyer that covers CRA liens, then of course, insurance steps in and clears that off the title after the fact. Right. So most lenders will say they want the lender policy. Why else would lenders want title insurance? My assumption is the CRA thing is a big one. They don't want the government taking priority and the government would take priority over their mortgage on the order of things in the title, right? If we're talking about it from a secured perspective, absolutely, right? So they, lenders traditionally, the big six, always want to be first on title and first in line. And anything that can affect that priority, be it the CRA, be it um, tax amounts owing from a municipality or just other liens, registrations from builders and or other other claimants. Condo fees if it's a condo. Condo fees. Any of these could and can be registered on title and affect the priority of the lender. So the lenders almost invariably insist on title insurance. But I say that in the same breath as Alberta does have another unique legislation. We have something called the Western Protocol. The protocol in Alberta and for other Western provinces allows us to register, notwithstanding the delay in registration, 
based on promises between council that from the date of registration, registration shall and will remain clear and anything registered after the fact will be the responsibility of the seller of that property and their council to clear, which allows Alberta to say, or Albertan lawyers in particular, to not have title insurance or make it a requirement of some lenders. There are those lenders that are going to say, you have to have it on every deal. And there's others that are going to say, we recommend it and we would like to have a lender policy unless you can provide clear real property reports, clear tax searches, and an undertaking from the other council that it will remain clear. Right. Title insurance is probably easier. It's a lot easier. (laughs) It's a lot easier. (laughs) And it costs around 300 bucks, so why not? Oh, I think the lender side of a policy is about 175. And if you add to that the 75 or $100 for the owner policy on top of it, it becomes, it's a no-brainer. And in fact, as we're talking about it, my recommendation to almost every buyer is to have a title insurance policy in addition to the real property report, be it compliant or non-conforming, and any promises or undertakings we received from seller's counsel. Why take the risk? I mean, it, it's a it's a minimal dollar addition to most mortgage transactions. But even with cash purchasers, I, I say if cash purchase, you are your own lender. So don't take the risk. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if you saw it, but there were a couple of stories in the national news this week about how in Ontario, properties had been sold fraudulently by way of, you know, identity theft and, you know, properties actually transferred hands and elderly owners were totally ripped off. And it wasn't necessarily even their family doing this to them. So We've had that in Alberta. And the big one in Alberta right now isn't residential homes, it's farms. Okay. And so the the stories out out of Alberta, and they're not always publicized, are that a lot of farms are run by family farming corporations and that uh, fraudsters are getting into the course registry and and we say that the corporate registry of Alberta and amending the directors of the corporation and changing the names to new directors and then executing sale documents or mortgage documents, taking out significant loans or selling the property as if they're the new owners of the corporation or the directing minds of the corporation, though families ever even knowing. Wow. And so we've had a, a little bit of that here as well. Crazy. Okay. So are you seeing any sorts of trends right now in terms of real estate, residential real estate law in, in Edmonton? Trends and transactions. I, I, I got to say, it's probably something that, that we come back to cyclically all the time. It's the price point of the deal. There are just certain segments of the, of the housing market that seem to move faster than others. And we're, we're seeing that transactions between three hundred and $500,000 make up 80 plus percent of our, our work right now. Right. That's not to say that under that value or over that value isn't being represented. It's just not nearly as popular right now. Right, okay. One of the things that I'm seeing is a lot of marital breakdown. And so then one spouse is trying to buy the property from the other spouse, so a buyout situation, or they're having to sell and go buy different properties together. Is that something you're seeing? To, to a degree, yes. Okay. The counterpoint that I have to that is a lot of couples and or, or individuals that had multiple properties. And so it, not necessarily just the marital breakdown ones, but where spouses or other groups had more than one property. We've seen a lot of restriction in the, in the rental market sale, which is either a combination of factors being that some groups are looking or some couples are looking to sell their excess properties and limit some of their liabilities with rising interest rates. 
that in a positive way. There are a number of people moving to the province currently that are looking for a new home, yep. particularly in certain price points. And so they are looking for that exact type of property. And so the listing of that is done. And the sad reality that during and now in a, a COVID world, the stresses are taking their toll on some relationships and those marital breakdowns are resulting in the sale or buyout of matrimonial property. But they also, conversely, equal sometimes more purchases. Right. Yeah. Right? Two sell, two or you know, two people sell one property. Buy Each buy more. their own, they buy two more. So it's good for your business. It's never <laughs> divorce is a tough one for lawyers to get you coming and going. Right. So So but it raises actually a good point. Like I work with a lot of first-time buyers, right? And quite often it'll be a young couple coming together. They're not actually married. And say one person's bringing in more than 50% of the down payment, you know, inevitably one person is making more than the other and, you know, carries, just brings more to the table, period. How should people approach buying a place together when they're not married? They may not even be common law yet. You bring up a perfect point which is that we are doing away with the term common law, that the courts and the, the legal system are moving towards and have moved towards legislation that does away with the automatic presumption that if you choose to buy a property with a significant other, usually romantically involved, that that somehow is going to turn into a common law or marriage situation. In fact, what the courts have done and what government has done is, is brought forth legislation that does away with any of the antiquated common law rules. What we have now is what we call adult interdependent partnerships. And what that removes is any of the onus of proving that one person is romantically involved with the other and that your intention is to somehow live together and produce a home together. What they're saying is that all adults now together can, can decide whether or not they want to buy property with one another and how that relationship will be governed based on dependency. Are you buying this together with somebody that is dependent? And what I mean to say is it's not that you are worried about classifying the relationship as common law or a or a marriage, but more so that it could be mother, daughter, uncle, nephew, grandparent, grandchild, roommates. If you're in a situation where you you have one person buying the property and the other person is in reliance on that, as you said, you know, either the breadwinner or or other, that you can still have these relationships created. And so it's a completely fundamental shift, which is to say, you know, is, is there a way to protect yourself in the way that the new relationships are classified? The answer is yes to all of it. It can easily be rectified by coming to an agreement before you do the purchase. And this is a very long-winded way of saying, get cohabitation agreements. Yeah. And are they worth the paper they're written on? And they are worth the paper that they're written on. If you come to an agreement in advance of the purchase of the property, laying out exactly what each of you are bringing to the property and how you're going to deal with it if the relationship deteriorates, it's not necessarily that you're going to be able to finalize the exact dollar figure at the end of the relationship, but that you can say what you both brought in, what you both expect to get out from that original monies that are put in and how you're going to split the lift. Like if it increases in value, then what happens? The hope is everybody's going to buy property and that it's going to increase in value, not decrease in value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not sure. You hope not to share losses, but to share the gains and you can help the process through a cohabitation agreement with regard to what do we do if we're looking at the end of a relationship? And this is a hard one when I'm talking to people that aren't 
thinking that they are going to be in a long-term romantic situation that could lead to marriage or civil marriage or what used to be classified as common law, that's not required anymore. It can be a whole variety of relationships now. And so telling people that, boy, you better think about before you buy into a property together, whoever your buy-in partner or partners are, what does it look like at the end? And so it's certainly worth the discussion with your other person that you're buying with. What should we think about? It's always tough at the start of a, a relationship. This, this doesn't sound end. very romantic. Really. No, it never does. <laughs> it never does. So, so plan the divorce in advance is what you're saying. Well, it, it not necessarily it, that it even has to end up in divorce, but just what happens if if that property isn't isn't going to be the the final the final property of the relationship, or what happens if if the two of you move further apart. You may never get divorced is what I'm getting at, right? right? Like, yeah, there may not ever be a divorce, but there could be a claim for dependency. And what does that look like? Well, of course, the court's going to look at a cohabitation agreement as evidence that you've thought about it in advance. Right. Not that you somehow just got into a relationship, bought some property together and never thought about it at the end. And one side claiming, well, I put in way more than the other and this is unfair. Right. A cohabitation agreement, even if it's not completely relied on by a court, goes a huge way towards intention. Right. So what happens if one person buys and then someone else, well, they meet a significant other who's not on title, they move in at a later date, should you be dealing with it in the exact same manner? Exact same manner, right? The moment you decide to to cohabitate with somebody, you got to have this talk. You're probably already having the talk not on paper. Welcome to talking with a lawyer. If it's not on paper... It should be. Right. Okay. So, and is there a set minimum amount of time? Like, you know, Joe moves in with Jane. Does Joe have to be there for 10 minutes or 10 years or 10 months? Absolutely up to the court. Absolutely at the discretion of how long have you been a dependent on one another? Not necessarily a set or prescribed number of months or years anymore. So you got to be very, very careful about at the start of cohabitation. What does it look like? Right. Okay, fair enough. What I see sometimes is where, let's say, this is a real-life example. Husband and wife, they own a house and a condo. She bought the condo before they were married. She wants to refinance. The lender says, hey, your husband needs independent legal advice. What's that all about? That's a very unique perspective because one of the questions that we ask immediately upon refinance or, or sale of a property is, are you married? If you are legally married, then our second question is, well, regarding that property, condo in this situation, did you ever live there, either of you, at any time since you've been legally married? That is still a creature of, of our statutes, which is to say, if either spouse has ever lived in that property at any time since they got married, then the other spouse absolutely has to consent to the transaction. And that's something called dower rights, right? And that is your dower rights. So, so what are, is that? <laughs> another creature statute that is going to go the way of the dodo at some point, which is that once married, there are intrinsic rights that are, are granted to a spouse regarding their matrimonial home and any other real property condo, house, other, that they may may have shared during that marriage. If the asset has ever, and I'm going to use legal terms here, but if we've ever had blended ownership, if we've ever had situations where either spouse has lived in that property, then yes, they have to consent to the sale or refinance of of that property. If the asset has been kept 
completely separate and apart and used as a rental property and no spouses ever live there during the marriage, then no, you actually do not need your spouse's permission in order to, to sell that property. You can swear those things and, and they be true. That has nothing to do with the money that comes out of the sale of that <laughs> property or the refinanced funds. But that's a secondary question, which is to say, when do you need independent legal advice? You need it when your spouse has interest in a property that you do not, where you are not on the title to that property. And in order for your spouse who wants to refinance or sell that property to close that transaction, the non-owner spouse has to have independent legal advice to have their dower rights explained to them, which is to say, you may not be on title, but by virtue of the dower act, by virtue of you being married, you have a life interest in that home. That is not a dollar figure. It is an interest. It is an interest granted by legislation to say you can't lose the interest in that home without giving it freely. Right. Right. And that's another big one, giving it freely. That's why you have an independent advice session with that that non-owner spouse and a lawyer apart from the other to know that they understand the nature of the transaction, that if they're consenting to it, they're doing so willingly. Right. And and then satisfying, obviously, the legislation to allow the transaction to happen. 99.9 times, that is not an issue whatsoever. Yeah. I've had it where they don't. And so that is, that is an awkward conversation to yeah. have. And so certainly the independence and the, the legal advice that that other spouse is getting gives confidence to the transaction. Right. Okay. What are some of the sort of like crazy situations you found yourself in with regards to real estate law and trying to, you know, obviously without naming names, but what's what sort of scenarios have you gone, wow, I can't believe this happened. You know, I'm thinking as an example. The house burns down the night before. Oh, don't. That's exactly where my brain went. That's exactly where my brain went. In every real estate transaction I do, always explain to clients and and particularly first-time home buyers, which, as you said, you deal primarily with. At my age and stage, I can freely say that I've hit the year 40 right now. (laughs) At 40 years old, most of my clientele still are first-time home buyers or second-time home buyers. And so they're, they're not as familiar with the system, which is to say part of the documentation that we do on closing is I set out two scenarios all the time that I call my my bad scenario and my worst case scenario. One's just a delay in the transaction and whether or not you still get to move in on, on the day of closing if your bank hasn't forwarded the funds on time or if there's just a delay in closing. Fine. Everyone can deal with that. We can get through that situation. The secondary one is exactly what you're talking about. What if something happens that prevents the deal from ever going through? And my number one is always, what happens if the the home burns down? From the time that you sign your mortgage paperwork, you sign your commitment, you come in and see your lawyer, you sign all your documents, they go in for registration. All you're doing is waiting for key release. What happens if the the home's destroyed between now and then? Literally, lawyers have had to deal with this and think about this, and I am horrified to say that I've had it happen three times (laughs) in my 15-year career. Well, it should be done now. Yeah, exactly. Three and done. Three and done. And the easy answer is that the the deal's canceled. The deal is, is is unwound, and we have both a land transfer sending the, the, the lands back to the seller, that the purchaser is released of their obligations under the contract, they get their deposit back, they get any of their funds that they've put down with their lawyer for their for their cash to close, and they run off and, and go and 
probably search a new property as soon as possible, yep. leaving the nightmare to begin for the seller and the, and the insurance. Yeah, and you know what? This isn't as far-fetched as it sounds. I mean, you know, you think of Fort McMurray or flooding in Calgary a decade ago, or, you know, I had a situation where the, the garage caught on fire the night before, right? So it happens. Oh, it, it, it happens. And I mean, we, we've had it where the hot water tanks exploded on the night before closing, I do running jokes with some of my clients, but of course they never feel like jokes, which is of course, if you walk up to the house to, to put the key in the door and you see smoke, run away, <laughs> phone the fire department. If you open the door and you hear the horrifying sound of rushing water, call a plumber. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's every different unique situation. I'd still say far and away, th- those are the, the extreme examples. If you want the day-to-day stuff that keeps a real estate lawyer just in shambles, it's bad sellers. Okay, Graham, realistically, odds are your house isn't going to burn down the day before you take possession of it. But what are some of the more day-to-day things that you encounter that could cause problems? The day-to-day problems that, that keep me awake at night are, are when our purchasers take possession of the home, and it's not in the same condition as when they last saw it. One of our greatest problems is when there's an item in the contract be it a, a positive obligation on the on the seller to do something, namely keep the house clean or get the house clean before you move out. Yeah, or get that wreck out of the backyard. Exactly. Clean up some debris, do this, repair the furnace, repair the humidifier, you know, like a positive obligation that doesn't happen. And you as a buyer are, are left with bad taste in your mouth because here you are mostly, as we deal with first-time home buyers, they're expecting it to go perfectly. And so a lot of what my role responsibility is is also to prepare them for some of these things. Prepare them not for just the worst, like the home home not being there, but that there could be nicks and scratches from the move out, that there could be some dirt, dust, and debris. And to kind of give them some degree of, for for caution, that, hey, it's not going to be perfect. But there are certain things that, of course, if not done, you've got to contact the law firm immediately. You've got to call us back and let us know that the garage door is now broken or... There's missing fixtures. And what I was going to say is you're asking me, what, what's my horror stories? They walk in and all the appliances are gone, right? Or all the appliances in the house have been replaced with new and inferior quality appliances. And of course, we get these calls not often, but when things go wrong in the deal, what we try to tell our, our clients is phone us. Let us deal with it immediately. Don't try to contact the other side yourself. Don't try to contact the other side's lawyer. Let us handle it. Let us try to work the issue with you. Now, that's what happens on possession. The other ones are, what happens in advance? What happens if you say, and this is a perfect opportunity for me to say, in your contracts, when you're dealing with your conditions, a condition that I don't think people use enough is what I'm going to say is the 24-hour walkthrough, which is to say, once you've removed your conditions, once you are in a position that you are, are, are getting either the day before or days before closing, Ask for an opportunity to go and take a look at the house again. Make sure that it is in the same condition as when you last viewed it, which in some cases can be weeks to a month before. Yeah, or a couple of months. Right? Exactly. Right? Or if you're coming in from, from a different province or a different city and yeah. you're moving in. Some people, and welcome to today, today's age, have only viewed the property virtually. Yeah. And so they asking for a pre-possession walkthrough is a wonderful and encouraged step. It also gives you the opportunity to highlight any of these potential issues I'm talking about in advance of closing, which before you even prompt me, 
I'm going to say leads to another big question, which is, well, how do you deal with those types of situations? And the answer is holdbacks. Right. Right. A holdback is where the two lawyers on a transaction, buyer and seller, both come to a monetary agreement that the seller will perform certain tasks or responsibilities. And until they do so, either law firm will hold back a portion of the funds from that transaction and not give them to the seller until those things are done. Right. But lenders hate holdbacks. (laughs) Lenders don't like anything that isn't the end of a clean transaction. Thankfully, lenders almost never have to know about the, the holdback themselves unless or un until the holdback is not done or satisfied in the event the purchaser ever gets those funds given back to them and has to complete the thing themselves. Right. That's the only time certain lenders may, may ask to say, are there any cash inducements or cash back provisions in, a, in, a, right. in this situation? Yeah, and just for people to understand, the issue from the lender's perspective is their, the price of the property is changing potentially with a holdback and that can throw out the loan-to-value ratios. You're only allowed to borrow 95% of the value of a home, and a holdback could push that value down. Correct. And so, and so what, what I'll say to that, though, is most of the holdbacks that we're talking about are under $2,000. Mm. So the things that, uh, that you're going to see regarding holdbacks are traditionally the non-provision of a real property report or the survey of, of the, the property. There'll have been an addition to the property, be it a deck, fire pit, gazebo, new fence, something that has taken that survey and rendered the old one not usable any longer. And lawyers provide each other copies of same. And after review, you're like, well, this isn't exactly the same property. I need you to go and get this updated. Well, because the contract and your lender require a compliant real property report, until we get that, we usually make the lawyer on the other side hold back a portion of the money from, from proceeds until that happens. Right. And so it's not that I'm necessarily worried that it's going to be some kind of cash inducement, but more that you have to have a carrot and stick in order, in order to make them want to do it. Yeah. And so these, these holdbacks traditionally are, are very low. But you're right. I mean, you talk about what's the crazy things that you've seen. I've had first-time home buyers go do their walkthrough with a builder, and the house is pristine. And their question was, looks great. Where's the garage? And all of a sudden, when we're looking at a holdback for a missing item like a garage and a holdback's $40,000, lenders really don't like those. But at the same time, what are you going to do? Right? You have to have a mechanism in place contractually between the lawyers to push the other side to do it. Right. Could we sue? Yes, of course. You can always use the court system to try to enforce contractual obligations. But running to court for every $1,500, $2,000 item yeah. either isn't, isn't worth it or is so expensive that the principle of the matter you know, is lost. Yeah. Holdbacks eliminate that situation. Right. Now, you raise a good point about builders and, and running into issues. A lot of builders will say to their potential buyers, hey, if you use our lawyer, you don't have any legal costs. What's your thought on that? I lived on both sides of the street. <laughs> I started my career working for a law firm that that represented most of the developers in, in the city or most of the home, like the large home builders of the city. So I got very used to having this discussion, which has two very easy answers. At the time that you go to your builder or that you're that you're interviewing a builder and they provide you with their contract, 
do not sign it without legal advice. The builder contracts are not done through uh, the Alberta Real Estate Association. Right. Builders have their own form of contract. And they're extremely biased in favor of the builder. Always in favor of the builder. <laughs> the non-provision of a real property report, not paying for title insurance, seasonal deficiencies and that holdbacks. with no holdbacks. <laughs> yeah. So these season, you know, when I say seasonal deficiencies, I mean they won't do the landscaping, they won't pour concrete, they won't do anything during the cold, so they'll wait till the next viable warm season. But no holdbacks. You can never do a holdback as against a builder. And so so to your point I say when you get your builder contract, that's when you must, you should be getting legal advice because it is not a standard form contract with the same consumer protections that the Alberta Real Estate Association Canadian Real Estate Association have have governance over. Yeah. These are pure private contract. Yeah. And so and so for the sake of an $1800 legal bill when you're buying a 3 or 4 or $500,000 property, get your own lawyer. Get your lawyer to review the contract. <laughs> so, you've signed the contract. Now what? Now you're going to get a truth that I actually I don't give most people, which is once you've signed the contract, there's virtually nothing that you can do. And so if the contract uh, and its provisions are, are met and the builder is, has built the house, you've reviewed it, everything they've done is, is good, now it's come time for the registration of mortgage and transfer of land, which in a, in a traditional purchase, not through a builder, is when you engage a lawyer like myself. If your builder is offering that portion of the, of the law services or legal services for free, I actually tell people to take it. Okay. Right? It's, it blows people's mind. There is nothing different that the builder's lawyer is going to do that I'm not also going to do. Because there, if the terms of the contract say there can't be holdbacks and no real property report survey is going to be given, so there's no survey to review, and the contract is finalized, that free legal service that the, the builder offers isn't going to be any different than what I offer and charge for. And so what a statement for me. I actually encourage people in those situations after I've given a brief review or brief you know, look at that builder contract, I tell clients and friends, you know what? Take the free legal service. There's nothing that I'm going to be able to do differently that they're not offering in that. But I preface that by saying, of course, before you sign your builder contract, that's when you should be engaging me. Right. Now, I had a situation once with a client who was buying a rental property from a builder. The original contract was written on an area contract and GST was not factored in. Uh, but they ended up using the builder's lawyer. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that guy had to cover the GST cost when technically it wasn't part of the contract. We've had this come up twice, and absolutely both times. If a builder chooses to use an area contract, and in the Alberta real estate contract, there is a clear definition that in the purchase price, that this purchase price shall include all GST. Some builders do recognize the fact that GST is owing on any first-time offering to the public, and they scratch that line out. And so the GST is included, scratched out. If they don't scratch it out, good luck. Good luck trying to enforce that GST is now away. We have had it come, uh, come up twice for our clients in the last five years, and both times we've tell, told the builder, apologies, but my purchase price includes the GST, and there's nothing that you can actually do uh, that's going to make me have to pay it. You still have to remit it, and good for you, builder, that you've got a lot of input tax credits from the from the bill <laughs> that you can write your GST down. Yeah. That I otherwise couldn't as a purchaser. Yeah. And so, no, 
it, it, if it says GST included on the area contract, it's included. If it's scratched out, okay, it's excluded and we'll, and we'll add it on, uh, which is just another preface to say, why would a builder use an area contract? Get your own form of contract. Builders listening out there, make sure you have a good lawyer. <laughs> there you go. Um, okay, one other uh, quick thing I wanted to touch on because, you know, people aren't aware of this until they're in the uh, situation. But in Alberta, you know, a transaction, a purchase is supposed to close at 12 p.m. Lenders don't necessarily get you the money by 12 p.m. And they'll say, hey, we got it to you on, on that day. Good enough. We're off the hook. Now, what sorts of problems does that cause for the buyer and the seller? That causes late interest. And so if you look at your, your contract, be it builder, be it, be it area contract, they absolutely always contemplate late closing. Late closing in the essence of the contract doesn't mean days. It can mean hours. What we found across Canada is that, again, Alberta, different rules than most. We've chosen 12 noon as our, as our closing time. In other provinces, it's the day, the day of closing. And to your point, what that means is if your lender is not an Alberta lender, if it's not Service Credit Union or Alberta Treasury Branch, there is a great likelihood that your funds are coming from a Toronto office. And the Toronto office can be two hours ahead and a day behind. <laughs> and so they can get us funds uh, all the way up to 2 p.m. on a day. And so what we coach clients is, is twofold. One, between the lawyers in Alberta, we have a pretty collegial bar. And what we, we mean by that is if we know that we're going to get funds between 10.30 and 12.30, knowing that the funds are, are due to that other lawyer, to the seller's lawyer by noon, we can ask for an extension. And invariably that extension is given until 1.30 or 2 o'clock because if I provide those funds by that day, they can still attend to the payout of their client's mortgage and get their client the sale proceeds and they can, they can finish off their transaction. After 2 o'clock, it gets a little squirrely. Right, So they have to have the ability to receive their money, do their payouts, and pay out their client. If they can't do that within that calendar day, their client now owes an extra day of interest on their mortgage and is not getting the benefit of their own funds. And so we collect late interest from our client as part of the closing in order to satisfy what we know is going to be the delay, be it one day or multiple days. Right. And inevitably, people are closing their transactions on a Friday. So there's two extra days. Three extra days. Okay, correction. Yeah. Three extra days. <laughs> and by the way, June 30th is the busiest transaction day of the year. And you've got Canada Day in there if it happens to be a Monday or a Tuesday. Like it's a disaster, right? So then you get these multiple days of late interest. We've had those situations, well, we've had multiple of those situations. And where we know it is the fault of the bank. Not necessarily that, that your lawyer is going to be able to assist in having the bank cover same, but where it is clearly the, the delay of, of your bank that has caused it. We've encouraged clients to reach out to them and say, hey, this is the situation. We'd like some compensation regarding the late, the late interest. I've been shocked. In the last couple of years, banks have actually responded positively and said, yeah, we, we acknowledge that it came late at 2 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. On the Canada Day long weekend, that's four days of late interest. That's $100 a day. We're crediting your, your mortgage statement with $400. Not going to say that happens enough <laughs> because that's the question I get from all my clients, which yeah. is, man, this wasn't my fault. Yeah. And, you know, and the law firm says, well, absolutely not your fault, not our fault. It's your lender's fault. Well, how do you explain that 
to the other side, the seller doesn't know what the delay is or, or cares. Yeah. And so it's, it's and they're not going to forego the interest payment because they've got <clears throat> their own mortgages normally. Right. And so the other issue is, you know, people who are expecting to get their keys at noon on whatever day, the money hasn't shown up. They've got movers there, which is a really bad idea. I'm going to tease that out even further for you. It's a huge amount of education on the part of the lawyer. So part of our firm's ethos and what we really stress is that when you are buying a property, even refinancing a property, you always see and talk to a lawyer. Not that our paralegals aren't versed enough that they could meet with any one of our clients and do a fantastic job. They don't have the same liabilities that we do. So what in our world, what we have decided is that no matter who the client is, you always meet with a lawyer. And part of our lawyer education for all of our lawyers, staff, other comes with what happens when closing doesn't happen on time. And so it, it, it's a huge part of our conversation with clients that you're never going to close at 12 noon. I don't know anybody that gets their keys right at 12. What we talk with our realtors, brokers, lawyers is that you set the expectations of the transaction, knowing that it's unlikely that you'll close at 12 noon. If there's a delay, you may not even close that day. So first and foremost, do not spend money or book third-party service providers for that day of closing. You don't know if you're going to get keys at 12, 1, 4 p.m., 6 p.m. And so you want the cable guy to show up? Great. Book him for two days after closing. Your moving van that costs $300 an hour and is circling the block since 10 in the morning? Don't do it. Right? If there's a delay, nobody, the lawyer, the other side, your bank, no one's covering those costs. So part of it is education. Right. Which is really just to say, set the expectations. Right. Now, one potential solution for money showing up late is tenancy at will. Tell me about that. So in this situation, which a tenancy at will is mostly surrounding, is a delay on the part of the lender. The other situation is if the seller and, and their lawyer haven't completed the sale documents in time. Regardless, what the situation entails is where a purchaser has their down payment, has their cash to close, which is the remainder of the funds needed to, to close the transaction, has signed their documents, and is otherwise ready to close. If either their lender or the, the selling side is not yet ready, they can still ask to move into the property. Notwithstanding that, they haven't paid for it. And they can do that under the promise that, of course, in the event that it's their lender and the mortgage funds that are the sole cause of the delay, that they'll close as soon as possible thereafter. Plus the payment of late interest. Right. <laughs> Plus but at the least payment you of late the keys interest. To the place. But you can ask for the keys. <laughs> and so the reason that sellers would even entertain this is not just the payment of late interest. That that's an inducement, but that it removes the liabilities off the seller. And so that if you are selling a house in Edmonton and it's minus forty two outside, that the moment the new buyer, tenancy or post purchase takes control of that property, you as a seller, your liabilities are done. You don't have to keep the heat on. You don't have to have the utility bills in your name. You're not paying property taxes anymore. And most importantly, you're not having to go look after the property to make sure none of the bad things have happened. And so the moment that you grant tenancy, you're relieved of those things. You allow that new purchaser, even not having fully paid for the property, to take those liabilities on and relieve you from them. That's not to say some sellers don't say no. Some sellers are like, no, I'd like to know that the purchase is fully complete before I, before I grant possession. I'm not interested in tenancy. 
nine out of 10 say yes to tenancy because right. they're getting paid to do so and they, all their liabilities are lifted. Right. Yeah. And they're just good people who want things oh. to move along, but that's Absolutely. probably the least of it. <laughs> True. <laughs> okay. Let's say you had a family member who was buying a place in Ontario or somewhere else where you're not licensed to, to practice real estate law. How the heck do you go about choosing a lawyer to work with? So, Thankfully, and this is going to be a great plug for the organization that I've been with for 15 years, we have the Canadian Bar Association. The Canadian Bar Association is a membership of all lawyers across Canada, regardless of jurisdiction, and that then have their own provincial governance. What that allows me is a huge database of lawyers, particularly real estate lawyers in my field, that I can reach out to and ask whether they'll act as agent or in, in the sense that if I know somebody's moving here, be the actual lawyer for the sale of the, the property there. Right. But what, I, what I'm actually getting at is if I'm, you know, a member of the public and I'm buying a place, how do I choose a lawyer? How do I choose Jane Doe versus John Smith? In our jurisdiction or anywhere? Or anywhere. Oh, anywhere. Like, how do you pick a lawyer? Oh, boy. That day. Boy, I've been working on that question for 15 years. It's anywhere from a good online presence. And by saying a good online presence, I don't mean a flashy web page. I mean that if you have a number of good and real Google reviews, I think in the new digital age, particularly for lawyers, it's less so that people particularly don't have any contacts in, in that province or that city. You're not just relying on a friend telling you, oh, I had a good experience with another lawyer. You have to have a, a good online reputation. It's become a, a very huge subset of our of our work where Google reviews and Reddit reviews. Yeah. I think one of my my partners and I are the only people that have a subreddit in Edmonton real estate lawyers. That has been a, a good source of, of trustworthiness for us for people looking online. Google reviews are are a huge one. Simply Googling real estate lawyer Edmonton and seeing a list of, of 50 names, it's hard to differentiate. Right. And, and don't go based on price either, right? I mean, you will be able to find any price point you want. I know there are law firms that will, on an a la carte basis, start their legal fees at $350. And then, oh, every week uh, under four weeks out, they charge another $100. And, oh, there's a mortgage, it's $300. And you could end up paying fees far in excess of what the average fee is, not realizing that when you add all of the things up, you're paying more. There are also going to be firms that don't do real estate traditionally. One of the things that you should be looking for is the fact that the lawyer you're choosing actually practices real estate. Not to say that all lawyers in, in Alberta aren't able to practice in, in all the fields. They may not have as same core competencies as everybody else. I don't practice criminal law. I rely on a network of, of colleagues that do so that I can promote them. Yeah. Just the same way for real estate. Yeah, you don't get a heart surgeon to do brain surgery, right? So. Exactly. And so, yeah, don't race to the bottom. But also, don't have fear that you phone and get a quote and that you can't phone other law firms. Don't necessarily take the first person you call. I've had great success in my career encouraging people that I've had cold calls with to say, we've had a great report and a great conversation. I still encourage you to go out there and, and chat to some other lawyers. Make sure you feel comfortable with me because it, it also can be about fit. You know that if you have confidence going into the transaction that you're going to feel better about it or the report with the lawyer is going to help smooth it along. Yeah. yeah. 
Any other last thoughts, comments, or anything you want to add? No, I'm going to harp on it forever. Make sure that you get your lawyer to look at your contract before you remove your conditions. It's Please. super rare that I see that in a purchase contract. Oh, I know. And it usually comes from somebody being burned before, right? And so you don't want to get yourself in a position where you ever lived a condition that you didn't know could come back to haunt you. Make sure that you get your contracts reviewed and that you are absolutely ready to go before you lift a condition. Especially builder contracts. Especially builder contracts. All right. Thanks a lot, Graham. Cheers. Cheers.